So then what actually is Samatha meditation? And um, I'll talk about the specifics of how you do it in a minute, but there's, there's really two uh, different sides of the coin of this practice. There's the transformational side where basically we are um, finding that we're meditating and thinking is coming up and we're getting pulled off of the breath and then we're coming back. And that the the transformational side is really um, deconditioning the patterning, the compulsive mental thought patterns that are pulling you off of the breath. So the good thing about meditation is that when you sit down and you try to just come back to the breath, you find that in some ways you can't do it. Your mind's going off all the time. So don't think that this is not that you're doing it wrong. This is normal. And what's happening when you actually then come back to the breath is that you're basically you're updating your software program. You have a software program of thoughts, and if you, especially like on retreat, but even in daily practice, you can see what's pulling you off. And it's not totally random. There are patterns. We all have our own mix of patterns. And in Buddhism, these are called the hindrances and defilements. I know it sounds bad, but basically it's just our personality patterning. That's all it is. We all have one. The Buddha had a personality pattern. He had to work through it too. So as we know, it's it's a developmental stage in human development that we have to have an ego structure to hold the reflective consciousness. And so, um, but it's not the end point of what we are potentially as human beings. And that's what the spiritual path provides is another stage of potential for our development as a human being. So when we are coming back to the breath just with a simple act, it's like we're challenging those patterns that are basically compulsive. Because if it wasn't compulsive, you wouldn't be going off the breath. You'd be able to set an intention to stay with your breath and you would be able to stay there continuously for as long as you wanted. So this isn't a judgment and you shouldn't, you shouldn't criticize yourself for it. This is part of the human condition. This is basically you're seeing the first noble truth when that is happening. Um, but as we're coming back, we're basically starting to transform that um, groove in your consciousness. There are grooves in your consciousness that um, research has shown that the average modern human has maybe 35,000 thoughts a day. And when they study indigenous peoples that haven't been affected by modern culture, they have about eight or 900 thoughts a day. And think even with our technology, we may even be up to more than 35,000. And of the 35,000, this is the most interesting part, 80 to 90% are repetitive. And they're not just repetitive over today, they're repetitive over yesterday and the day before and the month before and the year before. They're not doing anything. These thoughts aren't helping us. They're not doing anything. We could survive on a very small number of thoughts and function completely normally. So, uh, so this is really, it's just like getting a software upgrade. When you sit down to meditate, you are giving yourself a software upgrade, basically. 
And so the trans transformational part is the part where you're deconditioning the old patterns. And basically with this practice, you're laying down a, a new groove that says, I'm really content just breathing. Nothing has to be happening. It doesn't have to be perfect. I can be content as a human, not a human doing, but a human being who can just be content being with their breath and sitting there. And so that's really, and I'll get into this more, but that's the transformational side. Then we have the transcendent side of the practice, which is where potentially the mind stream slows down enough and there's enough stillness and enough serenity that we can actually be in contact with our deeper nature. And in Buddhism, you could call it Buddha nature. You could call it your true nature. But there is something that is a deeper truth of what we are that we can be directly in touch with. And that is the potential of the practice to have glimpses of that, to have sustained experiences of that, and over the course of time, over a lifetime, over many lifetimes, if you believe that, which I do, we get more and more free. And then we can be free no matter what the circumstances are. And because we're abiding more and more in our deeper nature that is unshakable and is the ultimate contentment, really. It's that peace that passeth, passeth all understanding, you know, that's talked about in Christianity, that that is, a, that's, that is what you are right now. You don't have to do anything to get that. So it's really a matter of being in contact with your deeper nature. And this is one way that that can be possible. So that's transformation and transcendence. I'll, t- I'll talk about more, that more in purification of mind and the stages of each one that are potential. So what is really the practice then? Um, this is a present moment practice. So that's the first thing to say. Any meditation really is a present moment practice. Visualizations aren't present moment practices, but a meditation is really bringing you into the present moment, into what's happening right now. And this is where the breath is such a great place to rest our awareness because it's always there. You don't have to do anything to have the breath be there. A lot of meditations, you have to create something or add something. This is used in many, many traditions, the breath, because it's already there and it's so easy to be aware of. So in this practice, in any concentration practice, we are aware of our object of meditation. In this case, it's the breath. So technically, this practice is called anapanasati in Pali, which means mindfulness of breathing. And we are aware of the breath to the exclusion of everything else. So we don't need to push away other things. We don't need to be aversive. But we're just using the breath as kind of a resting place to just be like, ah. Like people who've done this practice a lot, some of them, it kind of gets to be a touch point where like if you're in traffic and you're at a stoplight, you can sort of just bring your awareness there. It's like, ah. You know, it becomes a place that's always available to you that is um, 
serene and is content. There's a contentment. So we're, we're excluding everything else. And really what we're doing is we're, it's like we're building a muscle. So we talk about building the muscle of concentration. Every time you come back to the breath, you're doing a rep, basically. It's like you're at the gym and you've got, maybe you start out with a five pound weight or a 10 pound weight and you're doing, you know, curls and maybe that weight feels a little heavy at first and it's kind of hard and you have to really work to keep getting back there. But if you keep doing the reps, you keep doing the repetitions of coming back to the breath, it starts getting easier. And pretty soon that 10 pound weight feels a lot lighter and it becomes to where you're not having to exert so much effort because those compulsive thought patterns that are pulling you away are weakening. They're thinning out. They're getting to where they can't capture you the way they used to. And so this is really the muscle that we're building of concentration is to um, have a capacity which is already in you, of concentration. This is already part of the mind stream. It's like a muscle. You don't have to get a new muscle. It's already there. You're just developing it. It may not be as strong as it potentially could be. So that's really what we're doing with this, is we're building that muscle of concentration. So in this practice, the breath is the object. There are lots of other concentration meditations, and even the Buddha gave us 40 different objects to pick from, but this is where he always wanted people to start. And um, so, but it's the breath, and you may have done other breath, other meditations that involve the breath in some way, like in Vipassana, usually the beginning instruction is to feel your breath at the belly, and that's a really good thing to do in Vipassana. But in this practice, that's not what we do, and you'll hear more about why later. So uh, in this, we notice the breath in the area between the upper lip and the nostril. So this is, we call it, we used to call it the Anapana spot, but then people felt like it had to be like a, a pinpoint spot no, it could be if that's what's easy to notice for you, that's fine. But it could be an area or it could even be a region. Like when I do it, it's more like a region. Um, and it, it might move, that's fine. Really the main thing is just that it, you don't follow it into the body. Like sometimes with Vipassana, we'll follow the breath in and out. We don't do that. It's right here. And part of what that does is it creates a smaller area, so it really brings the concentration in, and that's why it's a little bit harder at first. But we've been teaching 12 years now, and we've never found that with enough time, everybody can do the practice and can um, notice the breath there. And that's really the question we get the most. One time we were visiting the Sayadaw. He he was doing a, um, a solo retreat in... Um, Pescadero, and he asked us to come every month and spend some time with him. So we kept thinking, well, you know, let's use this time to ask him things. And so we asked him once, well, what is the question you get the most? And he said, the question that he gets the most, which is the one we get the most, I can't feel my breath. What do I do? So uh, the first thing is to know that you are breathing, Right, So you're breathing and there is air coming in and out. There's no question about that. So just to know that you are breathing and that there is air passing in this area and that with enough time, you will be able to notice the breath there. This is the subtlety and this is part of 
where you're actually increasing your concentration just to be able to notice the breath there. So, um, it can, but it can be anywhere in that area or region. So that helps. That helps rather than just thinking of it as a spot. Um, and there's a metaphor we use called the toll taker, where if you're resting in this region, so remember the, the, the breath is the object, not the skin. So if you're resting in this region and you can't notice anything, it's kind of like all the bridges here in the Bay Area, which now don't have anybody in them, but there used to be people in there called toll takers. And if you are a toll taker in a bridge and cars are going by, which is the breath coming in and out, if there's no cars, you just rest. And so the the pause or the place where you maybe uh, it's a little harder to notice the breath, this is a great time instead of getting all frantic about where's the breath, just to notice the serenity that you're just sitting here, everything's fine, you don't need to do anything because the breath is going to happen all by itself. And it's a chance to just be a human being instead of a human doing. And so that's really all you're doing is just sitting there contently, noticing your breath. So that's the toll taker metaphor. If you aren't noticing anything, then that's the time to really just appreciate that you are in a life situation where you're not starving, you're not in a war zone, you have enough health that you can do this, you have the time to do it, and that is incredible karma, incredibly good karma, the fact that you can even be drawn to a spiritual path because a lot of people on the planet don't have that option. So to really make the most of the fact that you have that inclination and you have a life situation that allows you to do it and to just be content. It's also good to put aside, um, as I said, there are different versions of the concentration practice and it can be confusing for people. So we really ask, when you're doing this practice, really just follow the instructions that are taught in this lineage um, and explore it in, in its own rather than trying to figure out how it fits if you know of other concentration practices. So then what is concentration? Because we're talking about it an awful lot and Concentration is a faculty of your consciousness. It's like a muscle. It's already there. You already have a capacity and a faculty for concentration. So it's not something you have to go out and get. It's really a matter of how developed it is. And uh, so there's the potential through that building the muscle to develop concentration and in the practice for it to progress over three stages of concentration. Um, and it's not something like sometimes because the word concentration is a word we just use in everyday life, there can be a sense of kind of efforting or striving that's associated with the word concentration. Like, you know, if traffic is heavy, oh, I better concentrate and we kind of grip the wheel and, you know, get a little bit tight and stressed or, um, or, if you have a project at work that's really demanding, oh, I better concentrate on this. There can be a connotation to it that's a little bit um, 
tight or heavy-handed. So I'd really invite you to just let go of that and to know that you already have a faculty of concentration. It's just a matter of doing enough repetitions that it can develop into a stronger capacity and a maturity. So as we're doing um, concentration, then there are three stages, and I'll use the metaphor of of a camping flashlight to kind of give you a visual on how the mind stream comes together in concentration. And our definition of concentration is unification of mind. So really what's happening here is the mind stream is becoming more and more unified versus the way that it's scattered in our normal life, which is we need to be able to attend to a lot of things in life. So that's not inherently a bad thing, but that scatteredness uh, can make it where when a thought arises, one of the 35,000 thoughts that arises that you might not actually need, that might actually cause suffering, instead of just going there automatically because we're so scattered that we don't have enough concentration, we have the option that we just don't go there. That's what you're cultivating is the option to um, have a, a strength, a capacity in your consciousness where you aren't at the you aren't at the whim of your conditioning, of the conditioning in your consciousness. So the first stage, there's three stages: momentary concentration, access, and absorption. And momentary concentration is like a camping flashlight where the beam, and I'm, I'm using like the camping flashlights where you turn it and the beam gets more and more narrow. This would be like a lantern. So where the light is kind of going everywhere. So in momentary concentration, we're trying to be with the breath and we're going off and coming back and going off and coming back. And it's really the first stage where we may have some continuity with our object, but we also find that we're going off of the breath a lot. And then the next stage is, and I'll go back through this and how these relate to a practice like Vipassana once I've gone through how this works in Samatha. So in access concentration, and there's a big range of access, so there's momentary and then access concentration starts where you might be with the breath for maybe a minute or 30 seconds, and then that turns into two or three minutes, and that turns into five minutes, and that turns into a thought arises, and you know that it's there, but you don't go to it, and then that might turn into 10 minutes. And especially on retreat, this can actually get to where people are sitting for 30 minutes or an hour or multiple hours, which is what I had to do with the Sayadaw, without any thoughts getting to the point where they actually, um, the attention goes to them. So they can get to the point where they're in the background and you're aware they're there, but it's like you're in a room and people are talking in a corner quietly and you're not really, you know, you don't really care what's going on over there. To where it comes up and you see that you're starting to go there, but you don't. You come back. And this is where you're really reconditioning your consciousness. When thoughts come up and either you go there and then you return to the breath, or they start coming up and you actually don't go there. You take the off-ramp and you come back to the breath. This is really... um, 
this is a reconditioning and a, and a reprogramming of your consciousness to be more free from those thought patterns. So in the access concentration, it starts with a smaller amount of time and it, it can go up to the point that's right before absorption, which is jhana, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, but there's a number of phenomena that can happen in here called the jhana factors. I'll talk about those later where it gets very pleasant and it actually gets easier. You're sort of out of the pull of the egoic mind stream. And, and that's getting towards the higher level of access concentration. This is also sometimes called um, neighborhood concentration because it's in the neighborhood of jhana. And this is more like the, the wider beam. So now we've taken the flashlight lantern. I should have brought one. I actually have one. And now it's a flashlight and it's going in one direction and the beam is getting narrower and narrower because our mind stream's coming together. And when some random thing comes up, instead of going over there, we're just staying with the breath. And then the last stage then is absorption concentration. And this is equivalent to what is called jhana. And the jhanas have been very controversial in Buddhism. Um, I'll talk later about some of the history there. But uh, basically a jhana is where the mind stream becomes absorbed into the object of awareness. So it's a non-dual state. That's really the most important thing about jhana is that it is a non-dual state. And what that means is the sense that we have of I'm here and the breath is here and I'm meditating on the breath, that collapses into non-duality. So at this point, this is it's it's like a taste of enlightenment because what happens in a full jhana absorption is that the ego goes dormant. So temporarily, it's like the ego is just, it's dormant. It will come back the minute that the jhana absorption ends. It'll come back and you'll feel like a me who's meditating. But at that point, there isn't a sense of me and the object. There's just a, a being. And... This is why we think the Buddha emphasized this practice so much because it's a taste of being outside of the normal ego self that you know yourself as. And so it's a preparation in a way for um, the potential of awakening because it's, it's conditioning our consciousness to be free from the ego self temporarily. And without the ego self, it's really, um, this is the freedom from suffering and the ability to see through the patterning that can cause that. I mean, there's, there's is always going to be pain in life. And this is, again, the first noble truth of Buddhism is that the human condition is autumn, it's given that there's going to be unsatisfactoriness in it. That if life is perfect and we're going along, at some point that phase will end no matter how good it gets, that's not going to be permanent. And ultimately, we're all going to die. We're all going to get sick and die at some point. So um, this is a freedom that isn't dependent on conditions. Awakening is that. And so being without the ego self, it's like a temporary 
um, freedom from that. And the purification of mind is tremendous if that state arises. Now, this does not arise for everybody, and it's really something that needs a retreat to happen. So it's just like with Vipassana. You're not going to get the good stuff in Vipassana at the end point, like what I was talking about, unless you go on retreat. So in a daily practice, it's possible to have access concentration arise. And that in itself has a huge amount of purification of mind because we're getting some freedom from our patterning. And as the hindrances and defilements reduce, so this is the compulsive patterning, the joy of our deeper nature can come forward. So it's possible to have taste of this even in daily meditation. Let's see, anything else I want to say? It's really easy to um, for people to confuse a high level of access concentration with jhana. And so this is part of where it's really important to have a teacher who really knows the territory in this practice. Um, like when I used to do Vipassana retreats, I would have such a high level of access concentration and come in and report because in Vipassana, so there's two, there's a number of different kinds of meditation, just categories, and the brain researchers are really teasing this apart. Concentration meditation is what's called um, focused attention. So if you're doing a mantra, you, you were asking about TM or the Brahma Viharas, for those of you who know the, those practices, those are all focused attention practices where we're really attending to one thing to the exclusion of everything else. And what that is building is the serenity, the concentration, and also it builds a kind of disinterest in our story. So going back to the car driving example, that need to kind of run through that story over and over. And, at the, you know, what's happening to our physiology? If they had you hooked up to monitors, all these awful chemicals are being released in your brain. You know, it's bad for the body. It takes the body a while to recover if we allow ourselves to go into a full-blown um, cycle of negative emotions it actually has an effect on our bodies. So instead of that happening, this is where um, where the concentration meditation really develops that muscle of the capacity to turn away so that that doesn't happen. It happens for 30 seconds, and then we can just let go of it. It isn't, our, our consciousness isn't compelled to go there. So uh, so the other kind, which is Vipassana, was, is within this, as well as um, Shikantaza in Zen and the Dzogchen Rigpa practice, the um, Chitanupasana is in this, is open awareness, or sometimes they call it open monitoring. But basically, in those practices, you're uh, being aware of whatever is arising in the moment. And Vipassana is taught a lot here. A lot of you are Vipassana practitioners. So that is a category of practice that only goes up to access concentration. So that's one of the differences is that in a practice like Vipassana, you can have momentary concentration and access. But because the objects of meditation are changing, so really with Vipassana, your object is the present moment. 
that is the thing that's constant. But the contents of that, like right now I'm hearing my voice and I feel myself sitting here and, you know, I can see all of you. Those are all things I might be noting or noticing in Vipassana. Those are all different contents. So that's why a practice like Vipassana cannot go into a jhana absorption. And, you know, it's not, again, it's not a negative. That practice has lots of good things about it that I'll talk about later, what's happening in that versus this, because they are different. But just for you to know, they're cultivating different things in the mind stream, and a Vipassana can't go as far as uh, a jhana absorption. And then also just the purification of mind is happening really in access and absorption concentration. Both of those purification of mind is happening. So this is where um, even for people where jhana isn't going to arise for them, and we don't really know there's some combination of factors that makes that possible for some people and for others, you know, it, it, it just we aren't sure exactly what it is. Some of it is grace. Some of it is your mind stream and its readiness. Um, but even in access concentration, there is so much purification of mind happening and so much of the software upgrade that's happening to your consciousness that it's extremely beneficial. So um, I think I'll take a few questions. Can you speak a little bit more about how you differentiate between absorption and access? Sure. Um, well, absorption is a non-dual state. That's really the biggest difference. So in absorption, there's a sense of, of when the mind stream is ripe enough and the, the unification is strong enough, and then also there's a kind of a raising of our vibration that happens, like on retreat especially, we we give a whole talk about these kinds of things. Um, people can feel it happening where like the energy level in the body is getting really high. Um, there aren't, in the high access concentration, there aren't any hindrances or defilements. So basically none of those are arising at all. And this could still be access concentration. In absorption, somehow our consciousness like gets to the vibration level of the first jhana and the awareness, we can't make it happen. There's no way at that stage to cause it to happen. It's like the awareness gets pulled into the jhana. It actually feels that way. And um, and then it's non-dual. Our awareness becomes non-dual at that point. So can you experience the jhana factors while in access concentration? Yes. And I'll go through the jhana factors later and talk more about them. Yes. So that's a really good point. It's kind of unfortunate they're called that because they are present in access concentration without jhana. Absolutely. And people can experience jhana factors in Vipassana. I used to all the time. So yes, absolutely. So that's a good differentiation as you can experience jhana factors in access concentration. In jhana, they all have to be at a certain level that's very mysterious for a jhana to arise. And so the the culmination of the jhana factors is also present and, and one is aware of that without, it's not like there's thinking about it, but you're experiencing the jhana factors in the jhana. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much. Sure. So, um, the question is really just on the transcendent 
side. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, I noticed that you kept on kind of describing a greater understanding of what you are, not who. And I just wondered if there was any particular reason for that distinction. What do you think? <laughs> I think yes. Um, and so that's why I'm interested in what you have to say. What do you think? <laughs> um, I, I think kind of I, I think who transcends across more periods, more kind of arenas, buckets, however you want to describe it, of your of your life. And I think what is a little bit more particular to um, any one kind of arena, any any one kind of relationships, or so kind of throughout your life. So mm-hmm. I think that. And I, that's why I'm interested in understanding if you are trying to be so specific in that. Mm-hmm. Um, or do you think that it does actually kind of like apply more to kind of like who you are rather than what? Yeah, well, the who, there's a whole story of, of who I, I am all for all of us that involves our history and our personality. And, and those are all fine things. There's nothing wrong with those. Um on the transcendent side of the practice, we can experience what we are that's beyond that, that may transcend even death. And that there, and the depth of that, which is really the ground of being that's manifesting you sitting here, that's manifesting the fact that you're breathing instead of not breathing and dead. You know, all of that is how, where is that coming from? Well, there's a way that we are that. And so to actually know that deeper nature isn't a who, because it's the same there as it is here. And so it goes beyond the personal who to the what that is manifesting all of physical reality as well as um, immaterial realms, which are part of the jhanas. I don't usually get into that on a day long, but um, there are, the upper jhanas are actual realms of existence that are non-physical that we can experience. And then there's the grounded being, which is uh, the ultimate reality in a certain way that is actually it's possible, and this is the enlightened condition, that is to actually be functioning from that. And so we can't say who when talking about that. Yes. Um, oh, is there more? Oh, hi. Thank you. Uh, so, so I have the question about, so can we, uh, or how to use the concentration practice to... Um, transform or I mean uh, yeah deal with the um, judgmental judgmental or anxious mind so especially when mm-hmm. like, doing work or judgmental or anxious mind yeah. yeah well this is giving you again it's building the muscle it's just like going to the gym for your consciousness really it's almost the same except not as sweaty so, um, well, maybe sometimes it gets a little sweaty, but <laughs> but really what is, what's being cultivated is both you may be more aware of the anxious and judgmental mind when you meditate because you can see it coming up, 
I didn't know. Is that ha- does that happen sometimes? Where because you're meditating now, you're really seeing it. That it's these thoughts are there. Yeah. So so that's one of the helpful things. It may not be that pleasant, but meditation actually helps us see what's going on under the surface of just doing all day long that everybody has. People who don't meditate don't even know that that's happening, and they're run by it. So at least for us, even if you're sitting there and you're going off the breath all the time, you're learning something about yourself that's running all the time under the surface. It's just that you're discovering it. So that's something to be... It's it's something that brings self-awareness. And so that in itself is beneficial to know that that's happening. And then sometimes we can see how much it hurts. And the Buddha talked about this as the hot coal, that sometimes we actually have to feel the hot coal to let it go. And again, without meditation, we don't even know we're holding a hot coal. So now you've seen that you have anxiety and judgmental thoughts sometimes. Sometimes when we can't come back to the breath, and it's like the hindrance or defilement is just pulling us, sometimes actually feeling how painful it is can help us to let go. So that is something that, and this is where we use a little bit of Vipassana because we, if a pattern's coming up and it's so strong that we can't get back to the breath, sometimes we want to actually investigate the pattern because then it can open up. But, but with this, and I'll talk about what to do with hindrances later, we come back to the breath as soon as possible because that's the new program. So that's really how you would work with that. And over time, uh, you may feel more serenity because the thoughts aren't as, they don't pull you as, as strongly. Um, investigate the, I mean, the thought and then let it go and then come back to the breath. Exactly, right, yeah. You can just come back to the breath or you can investigate it a little bit to really see how painful it is and how much you don't want to be spending time there. And that can help you let go of the hot coal sometimes. Thank you. One more and then we'll do um, a meditation. Um, I just want to start by saying thank you and telling you that I'm extremely grateful to have the opportunity to be here. You're very welcome. Um, I'm very interested in the idea of of jhana and reaching the state of non-duality where your ego becomes dormant. And I'm interested in the the neurophysical and neurochemical, potentially the neurophysical and neurochemical basis of this state and how it may relate to the possibility that the self is an illusion, that, that we walk through the world imagining that, that we are an entity that resides somewhere in our heads and that this entity controls how we operate and what we do. But if our thoughts and our emotions, our manifestations are generated by biochemical processes that are occurring in our brain, can we, how do we, what is the, how, how do we shut down our consciousness? <laughs> you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. how do we reach the state where we, we are not plagued mm-hmm. by our compulsions and, yeah. and our egos? 
that's the question. What you're asking, that's the whole question of the path, really, is is, is it possible to be free? Is, is the me an illusion? I mean, you know, teachers can talk about it all day long, but if you haven't experienced that, it's it kind of, some, some ways it doesn't totally make sense. Um, but once it's been experienced, then it totally makes sense. So that's part of the potential, is to have glimpses and tastes of this so that it becomes familiar. And the neurochemistry, I mean, um, I was studied at Yale at one point. There's pictures on our website of me with my EEG cap on. And there are, uh, there's a lot of wonderful research going on into um, meditation. There hasn't been as much on jhanas. Um, we've been asked many times, so maybe that'll happen at some point. But... Um, it feels like it's a different neurochemical situation in your brain. It absolutely does. And it's joyful. And I think good chemicals like maybe dopamine or I don't know what it is that's getting released, but it's, it changes how you experience yourself. I would put out that maybe there is something that is, is not just the body that's happening. That's my personal belief is that the neuroscience can tell us something, but it can't tell us everything because this is hardware and there may be software that's beyond the physical plane, which is part of Buddhism, that is also part of what we are, that transcends the physical. So either way, it, you know, in some ways it doesn't really matter. What matters is that you can update your software program. That is the most important thing, is that meditation and other practices can literally update your hardware and, I mean, that was the most amazing thing to me when I started looking into the research was that the gray matter of the brain is actually different in meditators. I mean, this is like the, the, the brain itself is different. So um, just, it sounds like really just from coming back to your breath over and over, it's gonna, that's going to happen. But what's happening is that all these patterns that cause the bad chemicals aren't getting run over 35,000 times a day. Maybe they're getting run over 5,000 times a day or 2,000 or... I don't know if there's anyone on the planet that's down to zero, but um, that's really um, what's happening is that the potential is by updating our software, by doing practices where we're deconditioning that. So I don't know if I've answered your question. And then part of that, if that goes deep enough and people can experience the freedom from the ego self, then we can see what we really are, which is beyond that. And it changes your whole sense of reality when that happens. So, I mean, that's ultimately the potential of spiritual practice is to live as a human that's informed, but to know that you're at your deepest, you are something else. Yes. So that's a good point, maybe to do a meditation. Are you motivated now? Yeah. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> I remember one time, I think it was Jack Cornfield, somebody asked him um, on a plane, he tells a story about this. He, someone asked him, people asked him on a plane, you know, what kind of work do you do? And he said, oh, I'm in sales. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so I'm a little bit in sales too. <laughs> but it really, I mean, the freedom is real. That's, I think, what I want to say is that the freedom is real and every single one of you has the potential to realize that. 
in this lifetime. So let's do a meditation. Actually, I think I'm going to start with um, with the posture instructions so that you can have your posture supporting you. And we'll sit for half an hour. I'm sorry we went over, but we'll, we'll have lunch at like 1220. Um, and we'll still have an hour. So whether you're on the floor in a chair, really feel your feet or your knees supported on the ground and really feel the support of the earth underneath you, our mother that sustains our life as physical beings, the life of the whole planet. And then moving up your legs, really see if you can have your knees be even just slightly lower than your hips. And this is the advantage of sitting on a cushion or a bench is that you can do that easily, but it's possible in a chair. And this allows our pelvis to have a slight tilt that aligns the spine in an S-curve. So as you move up to your seat, feel your your bottom on the chair, and see if your weight is distributed evenly on both sides. And see if you can surrender your weight to the chair and just relax. Then moving up, you want to see if your belly can just be relaxed. And there might be a little S-curve in the back of your spine, of your lower back, so that then when you move up to your chest, there's the other side of the S, and your chest can be open and not collapsed. Just allowing for that natural curve that we would see on a skeleton hanging in a doctor's office, how the spine is naturally aligned. And moving up to the shoulders, see if your shoulders can be relaxed a little bit down your back, allowing the chest to open and really allow for deep breaths. Having your hands placed on your lap or your legs, either folded or separately, but really just letting your hands and your arms hang down loose so that you don't need to hold them up. And if you're on a cushion or a bench, you might need to put a little towel or something under them so that your shoulders don't hang down uncomfortably for some people. Then going up to the neck, see if your neck can be loose. We hold a lot of tension there. And going up to the head. And if you're in a natural S-curve, of the spine, your head can just relax on the top of your spine without really a lot of effort to keep it up in a balanced posture. And your face should be like it was flat 
to a wall. So you don't want to be sticking your chin up too far or sticking your head out. Sometimes it helps just to tuck the chin a little bit, feel the back of the neck open and really get your head on top of the spine. Heads are heavy. It takes a lot of effort if your muscles have to keep it up. And again, feel the weight side to side to make sure that it's centered. And once you go through your posture, then you can just relax. You don't need to be bolt upright. You can relax into a sense of alertness, but relaxation into the posture. And then you just come to the breath, to the anapana spot or region, feeling the breath coming in and out, just noticing it. You don't have to investigate it at all. Just knowing that it's there and resting comfortably. And we'll sit until about 20 after. And if your mind goes away from the breath, just notice it without any judgment or criticism of yourself, just gently and kindly. Just bring the awareness back, knowing that you're doing a repetition and it's strengthening your unification of mind. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.